Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., Joe Montana, John Gruden, Steph Curry, Taylor Swift, Ozzy Osbourne, Johnny Carson, Carol Burnett, Chris Delfs, Billy Graham, Joel Osteen, Mother Teresa. Some of you got really nervous when we started that, like, oh boy, where's this going to go? <laughs> We're not supposed to talk about that in church. But one thing that I, like, I could tell on your faces, as those names come into your mind, you have thoughts. Maybe good, maybe bad, but you have thoughts as those names are read. And what's even more interesting to me is that those thoughts are probably going to be different from somebody else in this room. So someone you might go, oh, that's a good person. Someone else go, oh, that's a bad person. That names, names carry a lot of weight with them and a lot of disagreement. I think the only name we can really agree on is Chris Dels, right? That's the only one that every other name, it's a mixed bag. And even if we were to throw our own names out there, that's going to be a mixed bag as well. There's going to be people who like us and there's going to be people who don't like us. And, and a lot of that has to do with what we have done. Or sometimes what people who are associated with us have done. But names carry a tremendous amount of weight with them. You see, I want us to think about one more. God. Now, I, on this, this week on my Instagram story, I, I just asked, what is the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear that word? And the results were actually really mad. I wanted to like test my theory out. And it proved my point. Like, that, that when we hear that name or that title, like, a lot of different thoughts come to mind. Love is probably the most uh, common, the most repeated. But really, it's kind of all over the place because we grew up in different churches, different denominations, different families, different experiences color the way that we think about God. And if we were to... Like, if we were to go to the most happening spot in Elk Grove right now, the new Costco, if we were to go there, right, like, we're it, we've made it, we've got a Costco now. Um, if we were to go there, and we were just to stand out front, we were to, as people came in, or I guess you can't do that, as people left, and we were to just ask them, what comes to your mind when you think of God? That's going to get even more broad, and even more diverse, because the beautiful thing about Sacramento is that we live in a very diverse city. We're not just one color, one race, one religion. Like, we make up a whole bunch of different ideas. And it's a beautiful thing, and, but that would color the way people think about God. And so someone might say, well, I, when I think of God, and they might describe the God that they read about in the Book of Mormon. Or they would say, I, I don't necessarily think of God, I think of Allah as I read the Koran. Or I think about a bunch of different gods as I practice my Hinduism. Like, it's going to be all over the place. And what this shows me is that we can no longer just assume that when we say God, everybody knows what we're talking about. We don't have that luxury anymore as we think about the world that we live in because it has become far more diverse as time has gone on. You see, one thing that has been really interesting to me that's opened my eyes to how I think about God and how I read the scriptures is a very simple concept. And it's this concept that God has a name. 
And you go, yeah, God. But as we read through this, we need to understand God isn't a name. God is a title. So you see, the Hebrew word for God is Elohim. And Elohim is used to talk about God, as we would potentially think about God, the Hebrew God, but it's also the same word that's used to describe the little g-gods. It's the same word. And so it's this title that is used, and it's not super personal, right? Titles aren't very personal. If you, can you imagine, like, if I walked around, my wife, Danielle, and I didn't call her Danielle, I was like, the wife. That generally, that probably wouldn't go very well. Like, sometimes that happens, you know, is, oh, the wife doesn't let me do this. Like, that's, a, we use it in a negative connotation sometimes. But it's very impersonal. Like, I don't just go around and say, this is the wife. But when we think about God, I think sometimes we leave it at this, this title level. And not intentionally, it's just kind of the way we have adapted to the way our culture and the way the church talks about God. If you went to the church in the 80s or the 90s, sometimes like there was this, this trend that happened where you started using some of these Hebrew L titles for God. Um, El Shaddai, Amy Grant, anybody? Like that was a good one for a while. There's some other ones. Um, El Shaddai means God Almighty. There's one El Elyon, which means the Most High God. Or El Olam, which is the Everlasting God. And these were qualifying titles to distinguish the God of the Hebrew people from the other gods that were around. Because the, the Canaanites had a God that was just called El. And so when we see like El Shaddai or these other titles, it's saying, I'm, I'm like El, but so much more. I'm, I'm God Most High. I'm God Almighty. I'm the God, the Creator God, that no other God can say about themselves. And this is a way that the people... We're, we're able to distinguish their God from the other gods around them. And one thing that I want us to explore today is that there's one name that is used more than any other name for God in the Bible. And I want us to explore that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. And just to give you some background on what's happening here. You see, Moses has led the people out of Israel, or out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they go to Mount Sinai. And God's going to make a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. And so they go, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the terms of the covenant. This is going to be what distinguishes the Hebrew people from all the other nations. And God gives them ten laws, ten commandments as we know them. And as they're doing this, as God and, and Moses are having this conversation, Things are going south down at the foot of the mountain. They're getting impatient. They build a calf made of gold, like an idol to the God who brought them out of Egypt. And so Moses goes down to kind of address the situation, and he gets filled with rage. He throws the tablets. They break. And he has to kind of go up and reset with God. They have to redo the tablets. And this is set in that second interaction between God and Moses. So let's look at this. Verse 5, Exodus 34. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands or a thousand generations, and forgiving wickedness, 
rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, if you're looking at this, you'll notice that that term Lord is in all caps. And you might go, why? Because this is going to happen all throughout the Old Testament. This Lord in all caps. This is another way to distinguish this name of God from the title. Now, here's what's happened between, there's a whole story behind this. You see, as they were writing the Hebrew Scriptures, the writers were so afraid that they were going to take the name of the Lord in vain. They were going to break one of the commandments. That they stopped using the Hebrew word that was actually there. See, originally the word that is there is is Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. Most scholars, 99% would say it's probably Yahweh. Those are probably the vowels that are there. But we don't know 100% because they stopped saying the name. We don't really even know if that's 100% sure that that's how it's pronounced. But they stopped using it because they were afraid that they were going to break the commandment of taking the Lord's name in vain. So what they did is they took the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, which you're probably familiar with. You've probably heard that word before. And, And they began to use that in its place. And to distinguish it, what the translators have done is they've put it in all caps to let you know this is the word Adonai, but it was actually put there to replace the word Yahweh. And so this is eventually even how we end up with the name Jehovah, which again, 80s, 90s, we started using that word more and more. And Jehovah is the Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, and the vowels from the word Adonai, and you put them together, and in English it looks like Yahovah, Yahuwah, but it's actually, that's how we get Jehovah, just based off of the way that the Hebrew language is pronounced. So you're like, this is really nerdy. Why did I sign up for this? But this is, this is just kind of history for why you're reading what you're actually reading here. And so here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want the takeaway to be from all that, that the word that's used there is Yahweh. So whenever you see the word Lord in your Bible, I just want you to think of the word Yahweh. Why? Because I want us to go back a little bit into Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, this is a familiar story if you've grown up in the church. This is God's first encounter with Moses. And he says this to Moses, starting in verse 10. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? Then what should I tell them? This is a really good question. Because it's been 400 years since the Israelites actually were dwelling in the like they, They've been in, under this oppression for 400 years. They've been um, brainwashed by this culture for 400 years. And that's a long time to forget who the God of their fathers is. It's a good question that Moses asks here. And so God says, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So if you grew up in the church, this story of the burning bushes is kind of a familiar one. It's like go-to flannel graphs type stuff, right? And I think what we tend to do is we tend to stop with the story of like this bush is on fire, but it's not actually a bush. It's not actually on fire. It's like, it's weird. It's a weird story. And we kind of stop there. But I think there's so much in this story that is really powerful. Because what Moses is doing here is he's asking God, what's your name? And he's not asking him, what's your name? Like, hey, I don't know. It's nice to meet you. What's your name? The way this is, is written is he's asking, what are you like? What's your character? If I'm going to go tell these people, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they're probably going to be like, what's different about this God from all these other gods? What are you like? What's your distinguishing characteristic? And God's response is kind of cryptic. He's like, I am who I am, which, which for me sounds like new agey and philosophical, like a, a freshman in college who's just taken their first intro to philosophy class, and they come home at Christmas, and how are you? Oh, I am. And you're like, oh, okay, you, you're in college, cool. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like cryptic. If you look at your footnote, I don't know if you actually have a physical Bible, but there's a footnote there. There's another way that this could be translated, and it could be translated, I will be what I will be. And again, this may not seem super helpful to us, but here's what God is saying to Moses. He's saying, whatever characteristic I give you, whatever, whatever you're going to take to them, and you're going to explain to them about who I am, I am always that thing. I will always be what I will be. Always. Which is so different from us. Right? You could talk to me tomorrow and ask me how I am, and it could be different from today. I may not tell you that, but the reality is on the inside, I could be very different in a different spot tomorrow than I am today. And God is saying, that is not what I am like. I am so other. I will always be what I will be. I will always be the same. And this is really helpful for us as we look at Exodus 34. Because when we think about it, look at what he says in verse 15, the very end. Right? He says, this is the name. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. There's something about this divine name of Yahweh that God sees as really important to understanding who he is and what he's like. There's something about this name that God wants us to press into, to lean into, to learn more about who he is and what he is like. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. So we're going to jump back to Exodus 34. And I want us to read these verses again with that in mind. On the screen, I changed the word Lord to Yahweh, just as I want to keep that in front of us. I want to put that in our minds. So starting in verse 5. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, 
Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Now, we need to pause here because he's repeated his name, which is important. Bible reading tip, if you're ever reading through the Bible and there's something that's repeated, take note of it. Because this isn't being written in a word processor where you can write a thousand words and not have to worry about space. This is, every word is intentionally placed. And God wants us to to dwell on that. Yahweh. Yahweh. Because remember, I will be who I will be. Or I am who I am. And he's about to describe himself here. The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now what's interesting about these verses is that these verses are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. Meaning, the biblical writers are going to come back to these verses over and over and over again to draw off of them, to communicate again and again to Israel what their God is like. Some scholars call this the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That this is what people, if you want to know what God is like, this is where you go. This is what they're going to come back to to remind the people over and over again. And it's going to be used in some capacity again and again, just to give us some different perspective, or some different examples. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Nehemiah 9, 7. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. My favorite comes in the book of Jonah. If you're familiar with this story at all, God has shown tremendous grace and mercy to the worst people. Like, literally the worst people at this time. They skin people alive. Like, it's, a, it's bad. They are not good people. And Moses, or in Moses, and Jonah is not happy that God's willing to show them grace. Jonah's not happy about it at all. And in chapter 4, we see this. He's sitting outside the city. He's pouting that God has been so gracious and compassionate. He says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. He wasn't scared of the Ninevites, he didn't want to see them saved. Like, he didn't want to see them get grace and mercy and compassion. He wasn't about that. So he, that's why he's running away. And then he says this, I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. I love that he throws God's words back in his face. Like, how dare you be gracious and compassionate. Like, I knew you were like this. Such a weird thing for him to throw back in God's face, but this is what he does. And what we see, even in this weird example of Jonah, what we see is that these verses in Exodus are foundational for that, how they see 
and relate to God. That this is who their God is. And some of you are probably thinking, why are we talking about this? What is the point? And here's what the point is. If we aren't careful, we can ignore verses like these, where God tells us what he's like, and we can begin to create God in our own image. We can begin to make God look an awful lot like us. A.W. Tozer has a quote that says, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind? So that first thought that comes into your mind is the most important thing about you. And some of you are reevaluating right now what that first thought was. But here's what I think he's trying to say. If we have wrong thoughts about God, if we have an incorrect understanding of what God is like, that means that when we go to the world around us as people made in his image, as followers of Jesus, if we get that wrong, we are showing people an incorrect picture of God. And if you think about our culture, there's a lot of people who have watched the church and who have said, this is what God is like because this is how the church acts. And so I think we have to consider, because this is a terrifying thought to me. It's a terrifying thought to me that I can go and live my life. And I think we, we at times can just kind of compartmentalize our life. That there's my church life, and there's my Bible study life, and there's my school life, or my work life, or my family life. And we compartmentalize it. And so when I go to the store, I'm not carrying God with me. I'm not necessarily taking him with me. But this is the whole point, is that we are. You see, when the Hebrew writers were afraid of taking the Lord's name in vain, I think we can, the way I was always taught that is don't cuss. Right? Don't cuss. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. But I think that's such a a small picture of what what the biblical writers are really trying to get at. You see, when we go somewhere, we take the name of God with with us. When we go somewhere, we take the character of God with us. And so when we go and we take it incorrectly, When we take an incorrect picture of God to the world around us, we are taking the name of the Lord in vain. We are not taking the proper name of God with us because we're not giving people an accurate picture of what he is like. And so, of course, the words we use can be a part of that. But it's so much more than that because it's how we live our life when we go and we share with people what this God is like. And so what I want us to think back to is this, this author named Scott McKnight. He's, he's also a professor, and what he does at the beginning of his semester is he gives his students a survey and asks them what they're like, what do they like, what do they dislike, what are they passionate about, what makes them angry. And then he collects that and he gives them another survey. And he asks similar questions about God. What's God like? 90% of the time, he says, the answers are the same. of the time, the way that they think about themselves is the same way they think about God, which isn't, is both surprising and not surprising. It's both surprising to me because we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship, and so we grow up in a culture that is all about worshiping self. Do what makes you happy. Pursue that happiness. Pursue that pleasure. And so it, it makes sense that God would look like that as well. We become like what we worship. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, 
Am I making God in my own image? Or am I allowing him to shape me into his? Am I making God in my own image? Or am I allowing him to shape me into his? And you may be thinking, well, I don't know how to figure that out. Let's do a couple quick tests. First one. If God loves all the same people as you do and hates all the same people you do, you probably made God in your own image. Another one, if God agrees with your political party on everything, you have probably made God in your own image. Why? Because the God of the universe is far bigger than American democracy. Right? To think that God limits himself to one American political party is very American of us. I believe that God wants to be so much bigger than the boxes that we tend to put him in. I think God wants to be so much bigger than the small view that we can take of him week in and week out. And there's no better picture of this than Jesus. Because if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus came to show the world what God was like. He came to be God in the flesh. And who did he have the most conflict with? Religious people who put God in a box. And Jesus is always doing things outside of that box. And they're like, ah, you can't be God because this is our box and you're not doing things in our box. This is the problem that the the Pharisees ran into with Jesus is they had a box. and And God was so much bigger than that box. And so what the New Testament writers want us to do is they want us to see Jesus in a much bigger way. An example of this is in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 15 it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. You see, Jesus is God in the flesh. All of the things about the name of God, we see Jesus live out. This compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is Jesus putting these words of God into flesh and blood action. And notice what Jesus says. Let's tie this all together. In John chapter 17, this is Jesus' prayer before he, he is about to be arrested. And I want us to take note of two verses with Exodus 34 in the back of our mind. I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible because um, they they pick up on this. And the NIV has a footnote. But he says this in verse 6. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. And then look at verse 26. I made your name known to them. And will continue to make it known. So that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. You see, Jesus came to show the name or the characteristics of God to the people. This was Jesus' mission. is I want to be God to people. And I'm going to show them what it looks like to be compassionate and gracious, even if it means dying for them. This is the God we worship. And so let's go back to Exodus 34, and begin to apply some of these characteristics. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're going to carry the name, then let's look at some of these things. The first one is compassionate and gracious. God's baseline emotion towards you 
is mercy. God's baseline emotion towards you is mercy, which means if you had a really bad week, God wants to show you mercy this morning. He wants you to know that he wants to bring you grace and compassion. Like, this is the God we worship. He's not coming in here and be like, you screwed up this week. I'm going to tell you all about it. But he says, no, come home. Welcome. Welcome back. Let's, let's, try, let's, let's do this again this week. And let me transform your heart because I'm compassionate and gracious. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, is this the posture we have towards other people? We have a God who is compassionate and gracious towards us. But is that what marks us as his followers towards other people? Do we tend to give people compassion and grace? Or do we hold them to a much higher standard of what deserves that? So how can we grow in that? How can we grow in becoming more compassionate and gracious? The second thing. Slow to anger. I love this one because in the Hebrew, it literally means long of nostril. <laughs> and if you're a parent, so just, just do this. Take a deep breath with only your nose. If you're a parent, you've done that a lot, right? Like, like that, that deep breath through your nose is, is what saves your children sometimes because otherwise it'd be bad news. But it's this deep breath. And I love this picture because we're kind of dumb sometimes. And I just picture God over and over being long of nostrils with us. And just, all right, here we go. Which then begs the question, how are we doing in this area of being slow to anger? I'm convinced that things like Facebook and Twitter, the 24-hour news cycle, have made us very short of nostril. Right? I see something and I'm like, bah, I'm angry. And I'm going to let the whole world know about it. Right now, in this moment. I think there's times where God says, hold on. Take a deep breath. Because I think that deep breath is really important because it either means I'm acting out of myself or I'm taking a breath in of like, I'm going to breathe in the Spirit and pray that the Spirit responds. So maybe like take 24 hours before you respond to that Facebook post. See what God does but it's that long of nostrils, that slow to anger that God is with us. Again, how are we doing towards other people? Are we slow to anger? And the last one that I want us to look at, abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, God's faithful to his promises. And this is some of the best news because we all know that there's times where we say we'll do something and we just totally space on it. So if you've sent me an email, I'm sorry. Um, it, uh, sometimes it's a space. But God is, is faithful to his promises, which means that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And so for us, I think we tend to fall into this temptation to play the role of God. God's not acting on my timing. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to step in, and I'm going to do, do what God's supposed to do. And we forget God is always faithful to his promises. God is always faithful to his promises. He will always do what he says he's going to do. Why? Because it's in his very name. It's in his character. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And there's a tremendous amount of hope and freedom that comes with that. 
You don't have to be God this week. Breathe, right? Like, you don't have to do it all this week. You can let God be God this week. You can say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust that even if it's not in my timing, it's not the way I want it to be, I'm going to trust that you're going to be faithful to your promises because that's who you are. And so maybe for you, where is God calling you to be faithful? Where are those places where you need to let God be God to trust that he is faithful? My prayer is that this name of God, that Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, helps ground us in who God is and what he's like. That it helps us to see him in a much more accurate way and to live out our our lives in a way that represents this God. And that may require that we have to lay down some incorrect understandings of God, where we have to say, I don't know that this is actually God. This is my God that I've created. I need to lay that down in order to faithfully take the name of God to the world around me. And so that's the challenge this week. How how can we do that? Can we pray for God to reveal those places so that we can, can lay those down and take the name of God, the compassionate and gracious God, to the world around us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Would you help us to be your children this week who represent you correctly to the world around us? When we fall back into old patterns, when we, when we find ourselves acting out of our own strength out of our own ideas, would we quickly come back to you? Would these words about your character and your name be on our hearts this week? And would we seek to be those things to the world around us? Father, would we take your name to the world around us in a way that pleases and honors and glorifies you? We love you. We pray all these things in your son's holy name. Amen.